Welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is from Nehemiah 11 and 12, Covenant Living. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. And we'll be looking actually at a number of different passages uh, scattered across two chapters. We'll be looking at verse chapters 11 and 12 this morning. We looked at this uh, in our Bible reading this morning from Exodus chapter 19. It is one thing to make a promise, and it is quite another thing to keep it. The children of Judah had made a covenant with God in chapters 9 and 10. We had seen a revival break out among the uh, the Jews there, the Israelites, in the earlier chapter with the reading of the law and the response to that. And then we have this long, uh, this long passage, again, the longest prayer that we have in the Scripture, where they confess the sin of their ancestors and the sins that they had committed themselves. And then they made a pact with God. They made a covenant with God that they were going to keep the law of God. We are going to do what our ancestors did not. We are going to do what our ancestors had promised to do and had failed to do. We will do it. And so they make a promise, they make a covenant, and there's a long list of the signatories of this thing there at the beginning of chapter 10. And uh, they were determined. They had good intentions. They had obligated themselves to obey the word of God and to live as God had intended them to live. And they knew what they were stepping into. They, they, they knew what their, the failings of the past had been. They, they covered those things. They went through a long list of them. And so they made a promise. There's a confession of their guilt, and they make a promise, a covenant made by the people of God to fulfill what their ancestors had not. Now, was this just good intentions? Was this, yeah, I think that's a great idea, let's do it, without having thought through it, without figuring out how it's going to to come about? Will they follow through on this commitment? Now, a true work of God is a work in the heart. And it is an establishment of a relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will change your life. If you are truly born again, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, God does a transformative work. Now, it is not ourselves turning over a new leaf. It is not ourselves forcing ourselves to do this, that, and the other thing. Although, I'm not saying that there isn't any personal discipline involved. But God does the work. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to do and be what we are supposed to do and be. And God is the one who changes our lives. There will be a desire when we have trusted Christ, driven by a heart of gratitude to God, to do and be what he wants us to do and be. For the children of Israel, we have in our text a threefold progression. Number one, the dedication of the people themselves. And by the way, that has to come first. I can uh, I can promise my time and my uh, my possessions and so on, but that's there's not going to be any follow through unless I devote myself first. And so it starts with the the dedication of themselves. The second was the dedication of their worship that we are truly going to worship the Lord alone. And when you worship God, and we'll expand on this a little bit, when you worship God, make sure that you're worshiping God in the way that God has told us to worship Him. Because otherwise, we're just getting together, and we're having fun, and we're having a celebration, and we're having a concert, or whatever else you want to do, but you may not be worshiping God. You may use His name, but if you are not worshiping God in the prescribed way, may I say that you are, you are taking the name of the Lord 
in vain by doing so. And then lastly, the dedication of their, their earthly goods. In chapter 11, we, uh, we have the city of Jerusalem. Now, remember, wh- why did Nehemiah come to Jerusalem in the first place? He was over there in Persia. He was the, uh, the cupbearer of the king, which also means that he had a cushy job. He had a well-paying job. He had a prestigious job. The, uh, the Persian kings lived in uh, semi-seclusion, and they had very little uh, access. Uh, very few people had access to the Persian kings. It was dangerous to be a Persian king. A lot of them were assassinated. And so they were very restricted as far as who had access to them. Nehemiah was a guy who saw the king all the time. Saw him face to face, had lots of personal interaction with him, had a prestigious, powerful position. And yet as a devoted child of God, having heard the situation there in Jerusalem, Jerusalem had been destroyed over 140 years before. The walls had been uh, had been destroyed. The rock, which is limestone, had been been burnt, and uh, that becomes it becomes uh, loose lime. It becomes uh, almost powdery once it's burned. And so the walls had been destroyed. The buildings had been destroyed. There was a pile of rubble on this hillside. A generation before, a generation and a half before, some of the Jews had gone back to Jerusalem had rebuilt the temple. It did not have the glory, the the uh, the, the beauty that the Sol- that the Solomonic temple had. It was not uh, covered with gold. It did not have, but it was the same floor plan, and it was for the same purpose, the sacrificial system that God had instituted there in the Old Testament, in the book of the Law of Moses, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they had that all in place. You had a temple on a hill. You had a few small houses scattered around where the priests and so on lived. And that was it. You had a city without walls, without defense. And the Bible says that they were in great reproach. That uh, it was considered an insult to the God of Israel. That here they had their, their temple in this desolate place that had no defenses. In a city, in a village at this point, where no one else, no one lived except for the officiating priests. And there were no defenses at all. There was no wall. And Nehemiah, hearing about this, prayed and prayed and prayed. And we go back to chapter 1 and see this. He confesses the sins of his ancestors. And he, by the grace of God, the providence of God, becomes the governor, the Persian governor of the province of Judea, and goes back with an authorization from the king himself to rebuild the city walls and rebuild the city. And so he goes back, and in the first six months, less than that, the first three months that he is there as governor of, uh, and he's there in Jerusalem in this, this non-city, they rebuild the city walls. And the city walls are between a one and a half and three and a two and a half mile perimeter. Built out of, out of, out of the stone that was there. And they did it in 52 days. A remarkable thing. And the enemies that surrounded them saw and recognized that it was a work of God. So I've got this giant corral. It's got a perimeter of one and a half to two and a half miles. Within this corral, this stone-walled corral, I've got a small temple. Now understand, don't think of the temple as some huge, magnificent, gigantic building. The building was smaller than this room and the lobby together. It was smaller. The ceiling was probably, probably not as high as the ceiling here. 
It's not an elaborate building. It's not a real building, a real big building. Remember, they don't come in and sit down and hear preaching every Sabbath. It's a place where you have the, the sacrifices. It's a place where the, the priests officiate. Any preaching or teaching is going to be done outdoors, outside, as we saw several weeks ago when they read the book of the law, and it was in one of the courts, in one of the plazas outside. And so what they did, go back to, keep your finger here, let's go back just a couple of chapters. Go to back to uh, chapter 7 and verse 4. Now they had finished building the city. They had finished building the walls, rather. And it says there in verse 4, Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not yet built. Again, a giant corral around a hill. A few small buildings, the temple, and that was it. A large amount of open space. A very defensible site. Jerusalem is, uh, if before the, the days of gunpowder and so on, was a, was a great place as far as defenses were concerned. But there were no buildings there. They'd all been destroyed 150, almost 150 years before. And so what did they do? Look in... Uh, Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. So Nehemiah was there. The high priest and so on was there. The, the people who were in charge lived there in Jerusalem. But the rest of the people didn't live there. They lived in the various villages that were scattered throughout Judea. And the rest of the people also cast lots. They drew lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in the other cities. So they drew lots. They, they, they did this by, they did this, this was voluntarily. And it says here in verse 2, the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell. So there were volunteers on top of this. So we're going to take a, we're going to have a lottery. Do we say that in church? We're going to have a lottery. We're going to have a raffle. That's right. That's what you call it a raffle when it's in church. <laughs> we're going to have a raffle. And, uh, and one, there's a winner, one out of every ten. One out of every ten is going to have to move to Jerusalem. But the people willingly did that. It was not, oh man, oh this is awful, I've been, I put I just changed the carpet. You know, it wasn't one of those kinds of things. I got new windows! Uh, it was, they willingly went. And the people helped them, so they, they, they moved 10% of the population that was in all these different villages and so on, and you go back, there was a lot of villages. 10% of the people moved to Jerusalem. And so all of a sudden, can you can imagine uh, all the racket. You know, I've got uh, a neighbor that, that was putting on a roof yesterday, so I'm hearing the pop, 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 pop all day. Uh, can you imagine all the racket, the sawing and the hammering? But I'll tell you what, it was a blessed sound. Because that, that giant sheep corral was being filled with new housing that was going into the city of Jerusalem. The people had volunteered. The, uh, if you piece together the numbers and so on, it was at least 3,000 people that, that decided that we're going to, and by their promise, we're going to move to Jerusalem. 3,000 people moving in, and again, all new construction. It's like the post-war. Now, why did they do that? Why was it to, what was the importance of moving to Jerusalem? Understand that, first and foremost, this whole thing is on the heels of a revival. And the purpose is for the exaltation of God. This whole thing is, is to glorify God. The temple of the God of Israel, the God who is, was there in Jerusalem. 
And getting the, the people used to coming to Jerusalem for, for worship, for the various festivals, for the instruction in the word of God, to come and to see a hillside, a desolate hillside without any defenses was, was rather disheartening. And it was considered to be a reproach to the God of Israel because here his temple is in this desolate place. And the whole idea with Solomon and so on was to, to make this temple a place that people would be in awe of. To make this place something, a place that would, that would show respect and honor and glory to the God of Israel. And that's what Nehemiah and the people of that day were trying to do with the best of their ability. Again, they didn't have the resources that Solomon had. But they did what they could with what they had. And so increasing the population, number one, for, for protection. We saw earlier as we in, in the book, we saw all the, uh, uh, the difficulties and so on they had with the hostility of the neighbors, east, west, north, and south. To increase the population also for commerce. When you have the, the temple there, you are in need of a number of things. We're going to look at this in just a little bit. They, you were in need, number one, of sacrificial animals. You are in need of uh, of grain and so on for the different offerings. You are in need of, we didn't think about this, firewood. You know, at home, I, I just, you know, make sure that the propane's on, push a couple of buttons, and boom, I've got fire. You know, you go into your house and you just, you, you turn the handles and instantly you've got you've got heat. If you're going to be performing sacrifices in, in, in this day and age, again, 2,500 years ago, what do you need? You need wood. Do they have lots of wood growing around Jerusalem? Not a lot. So they had to, to have uh, the wood brought in. They had to have all these different things brought in. And so measure, some measure of commerce would be a huge asset as far as bringing these things in and making them available. And then also, here's a key thing. This was to make Jerusalem the center of Jewish life. And to have the temple there to, to understand that life, and this is true for the believer. This is true for the believer. This ought to be true for us. That our lives as a whole and our religious lives are one and the same. And to make Jerusalem the center of religious life was also to have it be the, the center of Jewish existence. That Jewish uh, life and their culture and everything was going to be tied to the temple and therefore make Jerusalem a centerpiece for their their lives. Now the rest of the people mentioned there in chapters uh, in chapter eleven verses twenty through through thirty six. I'm not going to mention it all. It lists thirty two towns and villages. Some of them as far away as thirty miles. Uh, Judah more to the south. There were also people from Benjamin more to the north, and the Levites in verse thirty six living among among the uh, the both of them. And then in chapter twelve. We have a list of, uh, of priests and Levites, and I'm not going to go through there in part because they're hard to pronounce. Um, but we have a list of those who came with, uh, with Zerubbabel and the chiefs of the Levites and so on. And this is, th- this list is here, by the way. You sometimes, why do they have, you ever wonder why they have the genealogies there? One of the reasons, and there's a, there's a variety of reasons for this, but one of the reasons is to give continuity. That we are dealing, even though we're looking at a span from the time we read Exodus earlier this morning until we get to this point here, we're looking at close to a thousand years between Moses and Nehemiah, about a thousand years. And this is to show continuity. That it is the same covenant. It is the same people. It is the same place. It is the same God. And it is the same manner of worship that was prescribed a thousand years before that these people will be and are practicing. 
It is the same Levites that had been consecrated. It is the same priests that had descendants of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron that had been consecrated. And so they came back from Babylon for this purpose. And now here with this covenant, they are doing it 90 years later for the, for the same reason. So number one, they dedicate themselves. I am willing to uproot myself. I am willing to forsake the house that I have been living in, that my, my father, my grandfather had come back from Babylon and built, going back to the ancestral village. I am willing to, to forsake that and uproot and come to Jerusalem and start over again. I'm willing to do that because this is what God would have me to do. I am willing to, to make a personal sacrifice, to suffer some loss, to take uh, some time, to uh, to uproot myself and travel. Because it isn't that, you know, I'm going to be leaving friends and, and, and so on behind that. I'm not going to see that often. You know, these days, I was mentioning... Uh, some a number of prayer requests in the beginning of the Sunday school hour, and uh, I just go, and I got the information. You know, we've got this this magical little device in our pocket that tells us what's going on all over the world. If I want to talk to a friend that lives in uh, in Japan, if I got a, if I want to talk to a friend who lives in Florida, I just push some buttons. I can talk to him or I can text him. I can get information right then and there. And understand that this is a new for some of you new young guys. I know this is this is be shocking news, but that's a new phenomenon. You know, in the old days, we had a, a phone that was this big. You couldn't fit it in your pocket, even if you tried. And it, and it did this. It's an amazing thing. One of these days, I'll show you how it worked. It's, it's a fascinating thing. And then there was, yeah, yeah. Um, we also had something called a typewriter, but I'll, I'll get into that another day. Let's not get distracted. I'm doing it myself. I'm doing it myself. So these folks had first dedicated themselves... That I am willing to make personal sacrifices. I am willing to give of myself personal inconvenience, personal hardship, personal difficulty. Take my time. And I'm going to go to Jerusalem because it's what I need to do. It's what I ought to do. And so I'm going to do it. Now, everything we've looked at has been going on in quick succession. Because when we get here to chapter 11, Nehemiah has still been governor for less than six months. Every, I tell you, this guy hit the ground running. He had a job to do. He was going to make it happen, and, and he did. He did. So now, they built the wall probably July, August, in between the, the harvest seasons. So they had a, a gap of time where they didn't have to be out in the field harvesting barley and, and, and whatnot. So they had built the wall. They'd done it in less than two months. He holds off for another month and a half or so for the dedication. He said, why did he, why did he wait? He had everybody there. Why wait? Well, there was a reason for it. Remember, what is the purpose of Jerusalem? The purpose of Jerusalem is this is the place of the temple. This is the place where the people gather to worship their God. In the fall, late September, October, is when they have a succession of different feasts. This is in part when they did the, the reading of the scripture and so on. You have the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, you have the Feast of Trumpets, and you have uh, the Day of Atonement. Those are all in quick succession with one another. And so what Nehemiah does is he arranges to have the dedication of the wall done at that time. The people are coming to Jerusalem. They are coming there for the sacrifices. They are coming there for the feasts, and, the, and they're also going to be coming for the dedication. They're going to wrap these things all together and make that connection that this dedication of the wall in itself is an act of worship to our God. And by the way, dedicating ourselves 
Dedicating our worship and dedicating our possessions are all and ought to be acts of worship. Now, we can just go through the motions. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll devote my time to this, I guess, if I have to. And I can, I can come and I can come to church, I guess, if I have to. And I can stand up and sit down and sing songs and, and listen to the preaching. And I can, if I really have to, pull out my wallet and drop something in the offering. I'll close my eyes. I'll make sure I have some ones and fives in my wallet for that. And, uh, and drop something there in the offering because I can make myself do this. Well, we can just go through the motions. But if we are just going through the motions, that is not truly an act of worship. An act of worship is an act of dedication, an act of devotion to our God. And it's driven not just by obligation, it's driven primarily by love and devotion. I love God, what's the Bible say? Because he first loved me. We love him because he first loved us, it says in 1 John 4.19. My response is one out of gratitude and thanksgiving. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Therefore, I serve him because he loved me first. He saved me. I serve him out of gratitude. I don't serve him to gain heaven. I can't do that. God gives me salvation. We talked about this last week. God gives me salvation as a gift. And I serve him out of gratitude and thanksgiving. And so if I am giving myself, if I am giving my, my worship and giving my possessions to God, it is a response of love and devotion because of what God has already done in me. And so we have this dedication to the wall in chapter 12, starting in verse 27. I'm not going to read all the, all the verses, but we have two groups of people. Now, what's a fascinating thing is when the wall was under construction and you have... Their opponents, you have the Samaritans, you have the Ammonites and so on. They have their representatives there, the regional governors and so on. And they come by, they hear reports, and they are casting aspersions. They are saying all kinds of nasty things. Ah, oh, that's such shoddy workmanship. It's like if a fox were to jump up on there, the wall would collapse. And they, they're mocking. Well, here, just a few months later, after the job's all done, they're going to have the dedication. How are they going to do it? We're going to have musical processions. We're going to have a parade. Now remember, it's a long parade because this thing is between a mile and a half and two and a half miles around. And so we're going to start, start at one of the gates, and then they're going to split. One group is going to go clockwise, and the other one's going to go counterclockwise. And they're going to rendezvous at the other end of the city. And they are going to have a procession walking on top of the wall. Which tells you, this thing was pretty well built. Now, let me pause for just a moment. As you have a picture in your head, the construction, if you've seen pictures, maybe you've got a, a, a Bible that has some a few scattered pictures of what it looks like with the, the different th- sites there in Jerusalem today. And I, Aaron and I went there, good grief, twenty over 25 years ago. If you see the, the construction that's there now, it's really plush, it's really nice. You have gigantic, huge limestone blocks. Some of them as big as the container that you see on the back of a semi. Great big, huge things, and they are perfectly cut, and they fit so well together that you can't slide a, a credit card, or in, in my case, a library card, uh, between the blocks. Now, all that construction is much later. That's stuff that was done, even most of it, even after the New Testament was written. Some of it was at that time, but most of it later. 
The construction that they did at this time was guys with hammers and chisels knocking the pieces together. You look at retaining walls around here. They use the, the, the blackish, dark gray stone that we have around here. And they don't fit together like bricks. They're actually rather loosely constructed, but you'll see some fairly high retaining walls around here, 15, 20 feet tall sometimes. And they, I don't know how these guys do it. Maybe you've seen these, maybe you are one of these guys. You take these big, huge rocks and you knock off a piece here and then we're going to slip that one in here and you stack them up and the thing can go up that high. Now, granted, it's leaning against into the hillside. But that's kind of like what this wall was going to be, except the rocks would be flatter and going uh, mostly horizontal. But they had stacked these things together and interlocked them so well that it, it was sturdy enough so that when they were all done, wide enough, it's, it's going to be, yeah, they, there's still a couple of sections of it in existence that they've dug up. The sections would be about as wide as one of these sections of, uh, of chairs, maybe a little bit more. And so, and it's going to be higher than the ceiling. And so they, they're going to have a parade walking on top of this thing. Don't fall off, you'll get hurt. And they had this, this, this dedication. And they had the uh, the right people involved because the the musicians that were prescribed were temple musicians, and so they had the various choirs and so on that were devoted to this purpose, appointed by the Lord, fulfilling their their biblical requirements. They had the right kind of praise with thanksgiving and the various offerings. They had the prescribed music of singing, and they had accompaniment back in those days. I know there's some church, there's a few churches that uh, have a big taboo against pianos. Yes, I recognize the fact that pianos are not in your Bible, but musical accompaniment is. And they had stringed instruments. I know this is electronic, but a piano is a stringed instrument. They used trumpets. Uh, I'm familiar with uh, a number of churches. i got a friend who pastors uh, uh, here in the Northwest, and he plays the trombone. They have a little orchestra and, they, and with, the, uh, with their congregational singing, and, they, and he plays the trombone. And uh, they also use cymbals, at least with when David was, uh, was king and so on, they used cymbals. I would suggest it probably was not thunderously loud where people hang, putting their hands over their ears and so on, but it was accompaniment for the music because the singing was the, the key thing. And they, they worship God in the prescribed manner. Now, I want you to understand that if we are worshiping God, and that's what we're here for, we respond in love. I'm not doing this to make myself feel good. I'm not doing this because it's fun, although it may be. I'm doing this because I want to worship my God. I want to honor my God. And if I'm here to worship and honor my God, then I'm going to do it in a way that he wants I'm going to do it according to the book. Give you a scenario. Let's say Friday. Friday is my, my 30th wedding anniversary. Now, we had our 30th anniversary uh, this past May. Let's say the anniversary is this coming Friday. Let's say my wife really, really, really loves Italian. And, and she has told me, dropped hints for the last month, of a particular restaurant she wants to go to that serves really good Italian food. Whereas me, me, I like teriyaki. Love teriyaki. I want to go to teriyaki. And so the day comes and she's, she's assuming because, because I really love her because she's, because I've, she's stuck it out with me for 30 years that I'm, 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 I'm going to take her to the, I, that I took care of it weeks ago. I've made reservations and we're going to be going to that Italian place that she has set her heart on. And we get in the car and I take her out for teriyaki. Now that tells you something. If you've got that whole scenario, you're thinking, well, 
that's either a cruel joke or you really, in reality, love yourself more than you love your wife because you're not going where she wants, you're going where you want. When we do worship, most of the time, we're eating teriyaki. Churches do that all the time. They do what they like. People do what they like instead of what God likes. We need to operate in a biblically prescribed manner. We need to sing songs that that honor God. We need to sing songs that worship God. We need to sing songs that even mention God. God is not the great pronoun. He is the, the Lord God. Jesus Christ is our Savior. And our songs ought to, ought to worship Him, and they ought to be theolo- have some theological depth to them, and they ought to be talking about what God has done for us. We need to worship God in a prescribed manner that honors God. Shouldn't we consider what He said as far as how we ought to worship? If we go through the motions of worship, and we have another purpose in mind, then we're really not worshiping God. If I am doing worship using my illustration with teriyaki instead of Italian, then the reality is I'm worshiping myself. I can go through the motions of saying I'm worshiping God, but the reality is I'm doing it because I like it, and therefore I'm worshiping myself. And we need to keep that in mind. These people here were determined that they were going to do do it God's way, and they did. In the Old Testament economy, they had to be ceremonially, ceremonially pure, and they did that. Look at verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people and the gates and the wall. They went through all the ceremonial processes that were prescribed there in the Old Testament to make sure that everything was in order, that it was in a a way that would be pleasing God as God had prescribed. They took the role seriously. They want to make sure that God was honored. They want to make sure that in doing so, they're teaching the people about this as well. Now understand, we could have skipped that. People wouldn't have noticed for the most part. But you know what? God knows. God knows the heart. We need to make sure that we approach this recognizing that. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. God knows. And we... When we are aware of our sin, when we are aware of our shortcomings, when we are aware of our failings in our our worship, our adoration of God, ought to get that thing fixed. And that's really what that those two passages, that two verses in, in Psalm one thirty nine are about. It talks about the forgiveness of sins as well. We can't just go through the the motions of liturgy. I have been to a number of funerals in my life where I show up, I'm there to, to be a presence, some, a co-worker or whatever the case may be, and the, the officiant comes out with his, his uniform on, or sometimes in the case her uniform on, and gets out a book and reads from the book. Good grief, anybody can do that. And it becomes all, all motion. Not emotion, but motion. You're just going through the, through the motions of the thing. Of the liturgy there. Gary Enrig in his book on the book of Judges said, What the people I, I, I lead need more than anything else is not a great system or a great organization, but a person who knows his God. 
And that's the same thing as far as worship is concerned. It is a pretense if I come to God without having trusted Christ as my Savior. I'm not really worshiping Him. I'm show, I'm attending a service. And I'm going through the, through the motions. But again, the reality is I am taking God's name in vain unless I am His child. And so we have in our, our text here in Nehemiah chapter 12, verses uh, uh, 31 through 37. I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but we have the procession, the first choir on top of the wall. They probably started at the valley gate on the west. And again, heading to the right, uh, the first procession going clockwise around the city, looping around through this thing. And this one, verse, verse chapter 12, verse 36, And his brethren Shemaiah and Azrael and Melal... Melali and Gilali and Mai and Nathaniel and Judah and Hanani and the men and with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe before them. So the first procession was led by by Ezra. The second group, starting in verse uh, in verse thirty eight. Again, starting on the top of the wall, starting with the same starting point on the west side, and they traveled the opposite direction. I mean, so the first one went counterclockwise, the second one went clockwise uh, around the city, heading and looping around to the south, and this one would be led by, by Nehemiah. They converged at the other end of the city where the temple was, and they concluded their worship there. The leadership there in verse uh, 40, the various choirs there in verses 40 through 42, uh, with the musical instruments and the singing, they followed with sacrifices. And then look at verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God made them rejoice with a great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced. Everybody was there. It wasn't just not a procession of men, but everybody was there with their families. The wives, the children, everybody was there. And the people were, were shouting, the people were singing so loudly, it says that the the joy of Jerusalem was was heard even afar off. One of the things that we get used to is noise. Living here in the Puyallup Valley, I live in a giant bowl. And I've got freeways on three sides of me. We I have two uh two train two train lines running through the valley here. We are under the flight path uh for SeaTac going north south here and uh it's never quiet here. Not really. We have some friends that, he's the camp director at uh, Redcliffe Bible Camp, outside, it's 40 minutes outside of Pinedale, Wyoming. Anybody been to Pinedale, Wyoming? Okay, I'm seeing some. Okay, Pinedale is out in the middle of nowhere. And you drive outside of Pinedale, go down this side road, and then you go up this, this single lane paved road, and it becomes a dirt road after a while, and you're driving on this dirt road for about four or five, six miles, and then you come to the end of the road, which is totally surrounded by national forest. And it says, welcome to Red Cliff Bible Camp. You can be any place at Red Cliff Bible Camp. You can be 400, 500 yards from somebody else, and you can tell when somebody's having a conversation. All you hear is wind and birds there. You're not even under the flight path of anything. It is quiet. That's only on, 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 on Sunday, though. When the kids show up at camp, it's, it's, it's loud all the way through there. But you, on, on Sundays, you, you can hear, you can tell where the people are just by, by tuning in your ear and you can hear the conversations going around there. Oh, so-and-so is over here at this place. I'm going to head over. I need to go talk to so-and-so. Ancient times, we don't have trains. We don't have planes. We don't have cars. We don't have buses. We don't have all this noise. It's quiet. 
And so you can imagine where you've got thousands of tens of tens of thousands of people converging there at Jerusalem for the feasts that were there and with the dedication and the choirs going on top of a hill. And they are singing and shouting and rejoicing. The idea of the noise going a long way, it probably carried for miles and miles and miles. And hopefully, within the hearing of those who who mocked them as they began the construction, the ones who said it will never happen, and as a testimony to the power of God, the adversaries could certainly hear. And the people of Israel that were there could not contain their joy. Let me tell you, for those of you who have traveled, preachers will tell you this, a singing church is a great sign of a healthy church. People who want to sing, people who have a, who have a desire to sing praises to God are, and doing it from the heart are going to sing. This doesn't necessarily mean the caliber will be great, but that doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't say those who can sing are the only ones that should sing. We are to make, what's this, the King James says, a joyful what? Noise. Some of us are great at that part. We need to sing. And if you get enough people making a joyful noise, it sort of blends in and sounds good. God is interested in the heart. A singing church is a good sign of a healthy church. And the people were singing and rejoicing because of what God had done. And it was loud. And I believe that God was honored. In chapter 12, beginning of verse 44, it says, At that time were some appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the first fruits, for the tithes, and so on. One of the things that where do the offerings come from? There were to be two lambs sacrificed every morning and every evening. There had to be wood provided. There was the, the, the showbread. There was the, be to, the, the, be the, uh, the various other offerings that were done. The, uh, the material for the incense, the oil for the, for the lamps and so on. Where did all this stuff come from? Well, it was, it was given. It was, it was, it was given as a gift. It was brought in as a, as an offering. And so the dedication of the people, of their belongings, they had a desire to give. And so they did. They gave the the portions to the priests, to the Levites, as part of their worship. Giving is part of the worship. And by the way, I say this not because I benefit, because I give too. This does not excuse me from being part of this. And the portions were given there in verse 47. They gave of themselves. They gave of themselves in worship of gratitude and thanksgiving to their God, and they gave of their possessions because God gives to us. It is not too much for us to give back a portion of what he has given to us in gratitude and thanksgiving, recognizing where he comes from in the first place. And don't say, well, I worked hard for this. Yes, who gave you the ability to work hard? Who gave you the brain you've got, the talent you've got, the initiative you've got? God did. Now, granted, you may put sweat to it, and you ought to. But God gives you the ability to do this in the first place. And we ought to give back to God a portion of what he has given to us. You know, folks struggle, especially in this day and age, I think, with a sense of purpose for their lives. Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Now, if you know Christ as your Savior, that question is answered. And it's not a matter of of what, but am I willing It's not what, but will. I am here to honor and glorify my Savior. 
And with that comes a commitment. We love him because he first loved us. And that commitment to Christ ought to, it needs to affect the whole life. It starts with, I give myself. And if I have given myself, now with that comes my goals, my possessions, my plans, my relationships, everything about me. There's a whole lot of things that we don't think about, but all those things come with me. And if I am willing to give myself, then the the giving of myself in worship and the giving of myself as far as my possessions and time are concerned, that comes easy. The hardest one is the first one. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's a reasonable thing. When you consider what Christ has done for us, is it is it is a reasonable thing for God to expect us to give ourselves to him. The children of Israel here approach this with good intentions. And we'll see next time that for a long time they followed through. They honored their commitment. Such a commitment needs to affect the whole life. That applies to us today. It's not limited to Sundays. It is not a switch that we flip on on Sundays. It is to be on 24-7. We are to be on duty at all times with all we are and with all we have. But the first and foremost is, why do we do that? Because somebody here might say, I, I just don't get it. Do you know Christ as Savior? Christ offers you everlasting life. I quoted John 3.16 earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ suffered on Calvary's cross to give you everlasting life. It's a gift. You can't earn it, but you can receive it as a gift. And so our response to that gift is all the things we've talked about so far today. Number one, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? And if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, where's your level of dedication? Where's your level of devotion? Are you willing to let God have you in response to him giving himself for you? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of these folks so many years ago. Father, you got a hold of the heart. The people were excited. The people were enthusiastic. The people were in earnest in their desire to please their God. And Father, may that be the case with us as well. A revival is a is to recreate life where life is. And Father, we ask for revival in our midst. Father, we would rededicate ourselves to serving you. We would rededicate ourselves to your service. We would re- rededicate our worship and our possession and our lives for your glory. And Father, if there's somebody here today without Christ, may today be that day of salvation. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuyallup.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.